The difference is that after you go through a breakup, your brain will get the same hit of dopamine through obsessing over a former lover as it previously did from a lover who was present in your life. We've talked about your dopamine system, your reward circuitry as being similar in love as it is when you're addicted to other substances. You can think of this protest stage of a breakup as your brain initially going through withdrawal. It wants to get its fix any way that it can. And it will do that through any means necessary, including just thinking about the other person. Welcome back to another episode of Talk Nerdy to Me. I'm your host, Alex Nashton, and today we're going to be diving into the neuroscience of heartbreak. This episode came by popular request following the episode released a few months ago all about the neuroscience of love and attraction. Today, we're going to look at questions such as why you can't get over your ex, why you can't stop thinking about them, why heartbreak is so freaking painful, where it lives in your brain, and how to begin the process of healing. Before we dive into this episode, we're going to take a little bit of time for a nerd alert. A few months ago, I interviewed Mona Anand about non-sleep deep relaxation and the practice of yoga nidra. To date, this has been one of the most popular episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me. Mona was a longtime mentor of mine and also the person who initially introduced me to the practice of yoga nidra. Since then, I've run several rounds of yoga nidra teacher training, including both in-person and online facilitator programs. If you are unfamiliar with the practice of yoga nidra, it's essentially a guided meditation technique that's practiced laying down. The goal of the practice is to teach your body how to fall asleep while your mind remains alert and attentive. In doing so, you help your brain shift into what is known as the hypnagogic state or this kind of twilight zone between being asleep and being awake. It's in this hypnagogic state, it's in this kind of in-between state that you'll have greater access to what is known as alpha, theta, and delta brainwave prominences and subsequently the subconscious and unconscious mind. Because you'll have access to these different brainwave prominences within yoga nidra, it makes it an incredibly potent practice for rewiring your subconscious and unconscious belief systems, pulling out old beliefs from the root, and planting new ones in their place. That's part of what makes this an incredibly powerful practice in manifestation and rewiring your brain to reflect the future self that you are stepping into. This practice also has amazing benefits in terms of regulating your nervous system. It helps your brain and your body shift into more of a parasympathetic state and also deeply relax. Whether you're someone who is actually interested in guiding and facilitating this practice or you not so selfishly want to learn more about this practice simply for your own self-understanding, you are more than welcome to join me online for a virtual Yoga Nidra facilitator training that begins on January 17th, 2024. We'll meet every Wednesday on Zoom from 5 to 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for about three months, and by the end of the training, you'll have a full understanding of the practice and the skill set necessary to successfully guide either yourself or others through it. Because you're listening to this podcast, you're among the first to know. 
Enrollment for this teacher training hasn't opened anywhere else. I haven't announced it on Instagram. I haven't announced it to my email list. Because one-on-one feedback from me and live attendance is such a critical component of it, space in the training is going to be limited. So to learn more and save your spot, you can click the link in the show notes or visit me over at alexnashton.com slash training. That's alexnashton.com, A-L-E-X-N-A-S-H-T-O-N.com slash training. N-I-D-R-A-T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G. Last but not least, if you've been listening to Talk Nerdy to me and have found this information to be helpful, I would love it if you could hit pause and leave this podcast a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. Welcome back, everybody. I have been getting so many DMs from listeners over on Instagram sharing the episodes that you love and the episodes that you want more of. And what I want to share first and foremost is that so many people have reached out to me about how after listening to this podcast, they've sought out therapy for the very first time in their lives. So many of you are taking charge of your mental health and getting treatment for everything from PTSD to panic disorder to OCD to codependency. And I just want to share that getting messages like this is one of the things that has really brought not just this podcast and its role in my life so much fulfillment and meaning, but also my life in general. You know, this is really my life's work, helping you take charge of your mental health and ensuring that you have the resources, the inspiration and the motivation to do so. So if you've been listening to this podcast and have been utilizing the things that you have heard to facilitate changing your own life, I really want to hear about it. I love connecting with you on social media. I respond to pretty much every single DM that I receive personally. And when I don't, it's usually because it's either extremely inappropriate or somehow I miss it and then like six months later I'll get to it. But if you've been listening and loving, please send me a message on Instagram. I love hearing about the episodes that you love, the episodes that have been most inspiring for you, what you want more of, what you want less of. And in asking listeners of Talk Nerdy to me that follow me over on Instagram what you have enjoyed the most about this podcast and what you want more of, the answer was very clear (laughs) that you all want more solo episodes, more so than you want interviews which I have to say was pretty surprising to me, but I'm also extremely flattered that you trust me enough to share my experience and interpretation of the science with you. We've had some requests for a long time now about how to move on after going through a breakup and how to heal from a broken heart, aka a broken brain. So that is what today's episode is going to cover. We're going to start today with a little refresher of what is happening in your brain when you fall in love. And this information is going to focus really heavily on the neurotransmitters that are involved. So in the process of falling in love, there are really four main neurotransmitters that we're going to be covering. Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and norepinephrine. So dopamine 
you might remember, plays a huge role in your brain's reward circuitry. It's highly addictive. It's the thing that technology companies are using to get you hooked to your iPhone, that casinos use in slot machines to keep you there pulling the lever all night long. It's also the thing that makes cocaine and nicotine so addictive. And when we actually look at the brains of individuals who are first falling in love, they look eerily similar to the brains of individuals who are addicted to cocaine or nicotine. So the purpose of dopamine is to be a positive reinforcer, to make us feel good, to help us feel pleasure. And in the context of love and attraction, from an evolutionary standpoint, this was actually a really good thing. We would want to be addicted to the person that we're attracted to because if we were hooked on them, it would make it more likely that we would make babies with them and continue the survival of our species. So dopamine is what gets us hooked in the initial phases of attraction and love to the person that is the object of our attention. When we're in those initial phases of falling in love with somebody, our serotonin levels begin to drop. And if you know anything about serotonin, you might be familiar with the fact that it plays a really big role in regulating your mood. So it's commonly known as regulating your happiness levels, although it does a lot more in your brain than just that. It's responsible for regulating your appetite and it's responsible for regulating your sleep cycles. It's also one of the things that helps you feel like you have a certain level of control over your life and control over your circumstances. When you're in the initial phases of falling in love, your serotonin levels drop so much that they actually look very similar to that of a person with diagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder. What that means is in the early stages of falling in love, you are extremely likely to begin obsessing over the person that you are interested in. You start thinking about them all the time. You start wondering when they're going to text you or call you next. You start stalking them on social media, scrolling all the way down to 2012 and the very first post that they ever put on there. You look through all of their tagged photos. You start wondering if you're going to run into them at the grocery store that's coincidentally right next to their house. And as you might be familiar with, in those initial stages of falling in love, you often have a really hard time sleeping. You have a really skewed appetite. Oftentimes, people don't feel like they need to eat at all when they're first interested in someone. And your mood can kind of be all over the place. From one moment, you're feeling really high and excited about the potential for this new relationship. And then the next minute, you're feeling scared and nervous and hypervigilant around whether or not it's going to work out and whether or not they actually like you. Now, as you progress through the course of a relationship, your serotonin levels will start to stabilize. But they'll stabilize at a slightly higher level than what they were when you were previously single before this person was in your life. So you do find your new homeostasis again. And for the most part, it's a little bit better than what you were experiencing before. The third neurotransmitter that we're going to be talking about today is oxytocin. Oxytocin is commonly known as the cuddle hormone or the love hormone. 
It's responsible for bonding. It's what helps you feel connected and attached to another person. So oxytocin is primarily released through safe, loving, physical touch, physical connection. But it can also be released in really high amounts when we experience uterine contractions. So if you think about mothers that are going through labor, those uterine contractions are massive. That's one of the reasons why mothers feel so bonded to and connected to their babies because their oxytocin levels are just absolutely through the roof. In that same vein, oxytocin is also released when we experience uterine contractions through other means, like, for example, having orgasms. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a current uterus owner in order to receive a flood of oxytocin through having an orgasm. The same goes for men, women, people who currently have and people who have previously had uteruses, uteruses, uteri <laughs> as well. Oxytocin is also released whenever we see something with a disproportionately round eye to head ratio. So if you think about babies or puppies or kittens, they have those big round eyes and those round, round heads and faces. Being around those kinds of creatures, for lack of a better word, releases a lot of oxytocin. Giving and receiving support, eye contact, giving or receiving a gift, all of these things help you feel bonded to and connected to another person. And if you think back to the episode that we did at the very beginning of Talk Nerdy to Me's birth with Kristen Leal, all about the science and the spirituality of the nervous system, you might remember that oxytocin plays a pretty big role in regulating your autonomic nervous system as well. It's one of the things that helps you move from a sympathetic nervous system state or a stress response into a parasympathetic or relaxed nervous system response, which it turns out is really helpful and really necessary in long-term relationships because when we're in the new phases of love and attraction, our norepinephrine levels are really high. Norepinephrine is also known as noradrenaline. So it's your brain's version of adrenaline, aka your brain's stress response. Your brain will drive up its levels of norepinephrine when you first meet somebody that you feel attracted to and are in that kind of uncertainty around whether or not it's going to work out. Because from an evolutionary perspective, again, our brain's two goals are number one, survival, and number two, reproduction. So if it increases your level of stress when you're in these initial stages of meeting someone, it will make it more and more likely that you will seek out the oxytocin from them necessary to regulate that level of norepinephrine and drop into more of a parasympathetic nervous system state. Similarly to serotonin, your norepinephrine levels will start to stabilize a little bit more when you're in a committed relationship. However, the amount of neurotransmitter necessary to meet your brain's dopamine quota tends to grow, which keeps you hooked and addicted to the person that you are in a relationship with. Now, let's talk about how all of this translates and changes when we begin to move through a breakup. 
There are really two stages of going through any sort of breakup, especially when you are the person who is being dumped. The first is called protest. The second is called resignation. So protest is the stage where you're still really wanting to fight for your partner, to try to figure it out, to try to make it work, to try to get back together, even when it's very clear that the relationship is over and has ended. So when you're in this stage of a breakup, your serotonin levels will plummet again, very similarly to how they did when you were in these initial stages of falling in love. So you'll feel like you have completely lost this sense of control. You'll start obsessing and ruminating again, very similarly to that of a person with OCD. You will notice that your sleep begins to change. You might be sleeping a lot more or a lot less. Your appetite will start to change. You might notice yourself reaching for more food as a way to soothe yourself. Or you might notice that you're not feeling hungry at all. Your mood obviously is going to be a bit all over the place. And the thing that I really want to highlight the most here is that you're probably going to be thinking about this person a lot. Similarly to the beginning stages of a relationship, when you're going through a breakup, your norepinephrine or your brain's noradrenaline levels are going to increase as well. And the idea behind this, again, from an evolutionary perspective, is that we are the safest within community and in partnership. And that if you lose your tribe, you're less likely to survive. You're more vulnerable to predation. You're more vulnerable to the elements. Your brain drives up your norepinephrine levels because it should be really stressful to be completely alone. The caveat here is that you're experiencing this stress without the help of oxytocin provided by contact or communication with your partner to help you regulate. You now have to learn how to regulate yourself without their support. This stage of a breakup, this protest stage, is characterized by other symptoms associated with heightened stress response and anxiety, things like hypervigilance, general feelings of agitation, panic attacks, higher levels of anxiety in general. Those are all super common among people who have been recently dumped or have recently gone through a breakup. But remember here that the levels of dopamine in your brain have continuously grown and grown over the course of falling in love with somebody and the course of being in a relationship with them. So you still need quite a bit of dopamine to meet your brain's threshold or to meet its quota that was previously set. The difference is that after you go through a breakup, your brain will get the same hit of dopamine through obsessing over a former lover as it previously did from a lover who was present in your life. So what that means is when you go through this protest stage of a breakup, there's probably going to be a pretty strong compulsion to look at photos of the two of you together pulling out old gifts that they gave you and reminiscing, looking at their Instagram pages, looking at their TikToks, looking at their Facebook pages, texting them, wanting to stay in contact, wanting to reach out. We've talked about your dopamine system, your reward circuitry as 
being similar in love as it is when you're addicted to other substances. You can think of this kind of protest stage of a breakup as your brain initially going through withdrawal. It wants to get its fix any way that it can. And it will do that through any means necessary, including just thinking about the other person. When you continuously think and think about the person that you have recently broken up with, it will still keep you in that same dopamine hook to them. It will still keep you feeling really attached to them in that way. One of the ways that your brain will also try to do this is by throwing at you what is known as a memory bias in an effort to compel you to get back together with your ex and end the distress of your heartbreak. In case you've never heard of this before, memory bias is something that your brain will do in the context of romantic relationships, especially after you've broken up, where it will selectively attend to positive memories about your relationship and selectively forget or neglect the negative memories of your time together. So what that means is when you do go down memory lane thinking about the breakup, you are more likely to think about all of the good times you had together and forget about all of the bad. And as I've mentioned so many times before in this podcast, this isn't because your brain hates you and wants you to stay in a toxic relationship forever or a relationship that's not actually working for you forever. It's because your brain's two main motivations are survival and reproduction. And it will value those two things above everything else, including the logical, rational, reasonable part of you that knows that this relationship is not actually what's going to meet your emotional needs. The second stage of going through a breakup is what is known as resignation. This is where your brain begins the process of beginning to withdraw from oxytocin. Oxytocin takes a longer time to build up the bond that's been formed between you and the other person. And subsequently, your brain is going to need some time to undo that bond, to undo that attachment before you can really feel like you're starting to move on. So when you're in this stage of resignation, you're beginning the process of withdrawing from oxytocin. Your serotonin levels are lower, so you're probably going to be feeling a little depressed. Your norepinephrine levels will actually begin to decrease a little bit again, so you won't be feeling as stressed out about the breakup that just happened, but you also won't feel as motivated to change anything about it because in this stage, your dopamine levels are starting to restabilize themselves and you're starting to get used to this lower threshold, this lower quota again. You might have heard in some of our previous Talk Nerdy to Me episodes that dopamine, in addition to being a reward circuitry neurotransmitter, it's also something that plays a huge role in motivation. And without it, it can feel really hard to be motivated to actually move forward and move on from the breakup. So it's in this stage, it's in resignation that people tend to spend a lot more time feeling really sad, feeling lethargic, watching a lot of TV, isolating themselves from other people, maybe drinking too much. And 
actually beginning to feel the physical pain of the breakup, right? There's a reason why we call it heartbreak and not brain break. And the reason for that is because the part of your brain that is responsible for feeling physical pain, like when you stub your toe or when you break your arm, is also the same part of your brain that perceives emotional pain too. There's actually been quite a bit of research illustrating that emotional pain, especially the pain of loss from another person, lights up this part of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex and the insular cortex, just as much as physical pain does. And this emotional pain of heartbreak is so physical within our brains that there's actually been some research done on using Tylenol to soothe it. Now, nothing that we cover in Talk Nerdy to me is medical advice, if you're going to be taking any sort of medication over the counter or not, please talk to your doctor first, do the right thing. But I wanted to share this because this was a piece of research that I only found more recently that Tylenol can actually be used to reduce social pain. So the pain of rejection and loss as much as it can reduce physical pain, like joint pain or a backache or muscle pain. I thought that was wild and definitely worth sharing with all of you. What I think is also really important to note here is that we don't just feel pain for no reason whatsoever. Pain from, again, an evolutionary perspective had a value. You know, if you stubbed your toe because there was a stare that you didn't see or a step that you didn't see, then that pain is going to make you more aware of the fact that the step is there next time so that you don't trip over it and injure yourself even worse. And we can look at emotional pain in the same way. It's there to teach us something. It's there to show us a lesson. There is a value to looking back at what went wrong, where we potentially made some mistakes, where we potentially chose the wrong partner, and to derive some lessons from that so that we don't do it again and so that we can save ourselves from further heartbreak next time around. It's in this stage of resignation where we tend to feel a lot of loss and a lot of defeat. We don't feel as motivated to try to win back the heart of the person that we just broke up with. But this is a stage where there can be a lot of risk for getting stuck in our heartbreak. Something that I see really often in my clients in particular is this compulsive need to keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it with all of their friends, with all of their family members, and even with me. They want to keep rehashing what went wrong. How could this person have behaved this way? They have questions that they want to get answered. There's this perpetual search for closure or completion or trying to make sense of the other person's behavior. And what I want to draw your attention to as listeners is that when there's a loss of serotonin, again, I can't highlight this enough, our brains function very similarly to that of individuals with obsessive compulsive disorder. There's this compulsive need for closure or certainty or trying to make sense of it. 
And the reality is that it doesn't matter whether or not we can actually get our questions answered or make sense of why this person behaved in the way that they did. We'll never actually feel like it's enough. Every time we have a closing conversation, there will still be an impulse or an urge for another one and another one and another one. We'll want to keep talking about it and talking about it and trying to figure it out. And the reality is there will never be a satisfactory answer that will allow our brains to actually move forward. And if anything, continuing to talk and talk about it, continuing on in that search for closure, trying to find completion, trying to make sense of it, we're only going to be reinforcing patterns and conditioning around obsession and rumination. So from there, we're going to start to move into the five most helpful actions you can take to start to help your brain heal from your heartbreak. The first is going to be committing to love sobriety. So what that means is cutting off communication with your ex, no contact, no seeing each other in person, no talking on the phone, no FaceTiming, no texting, no DMing. And I know for a lot of you that might sound really extreme, but remember love is an extreme addiction. It's similar to that of cocaine and nicotine addictions. Giving yourself just a little bump, having just half of a cigarette perpetuates the addictive nature. There really isn't a lot of room for self-negotiation here. Part of going love sober is no longer looking at this person's social media pages, no longer looking at old photos, and please, for the love of God, do not have sex with your ex. Remember, oxytocin takes a lot longer to withdraw from than dopamine does, and continuing to have sex or at the very least have orgasms and be in physical touch and connection with the person that you've just lost emotionally is going to be the worst thing you could do in terms of inhibiting yourself from moving forward. One of my dear friends and somebody who's actually coming onto this podcast for an interview actually in just a few hours is Rebecca Regnier. And one of the things that she has shared with me is blocking and blessing. And I know that in our modern world, there can be a lot of judgment towards others and ourselves when we block someone. But honestly, putting that boundary in place could be one of the best things that you do for yourself and your own healing. Knowing that you couldn't reach out to that person even if you wanted to knowing that you couldn't look at their Instagram page even if you wanted to is one of the best things to help your brain withdraw from dopamine and oxytocin and actually start to move forward. Likewise, it can also be really helpful to start avoiding the places that the two of you used to spend time together, the places that trigger a lot of memory of the two of you together. And if a lot of your relationship was created within your home space, it's probably a really good idea to rearrange the furniture in your home, move everything around, maybe do a deep cleaning. If you can, get some new furniture, get some new decorations, swap some of the old stuff out for new, 
so that your brain is no longer making an association between your home space and this person. The idea here is to minimize the potential for triggering memory as much as possible. The second most important thing you could do to start to help your brain move on is probably the most important thing you could do to help your brain start to move on, which is interrupting cycles of obsessive thinking and rumination. Remember, your brain is getting just as much dopamine from thinking about the person that you love and are heartbroken over as it previously did when you were together. Thinking about them over and over again is going to keep you in that feeling of attachment towards them and bond towards them. So getting into a meditation practice, or at the very least being very mindful of labeling and identifying, oh, shit, I'm obsessing over this person again. Let me redirect my attention elsewhere. Let me get really present with the dishes that I'm washing, or let me clean up my room, or let me put my focus on something completely separate and different from my ex, that can be a really helpful way to start to help your brain move forward. The third thing that you can do to start to heal your broken heart brain is by getting your neurotransmitter fix from somewhere else. So for serotonin, you can increase your levels there by getting out into sunlight more. Laughing, so watching rom-coms, watching comedy TV, Spending time with your friends, especially the friends that make you laugh a lot. Eating chocolate, also a great way to get your serotonin levels up. That's not just a self-sabotage behavior. It's something that I think our bodies intuitively want to do because they know it's going to help literally make us happier again. And also exercising more. Exercising is a really great way to start to boost your serotonin levels naturally. In terms of getting your oxytocin fix from somewhere else, we've already mentioned quite a few of these things on the podcast today already. So cuddling a puppy or a kitten, a dog or a cat, making eye contact with your friends, giving and receiving gifts to your friends or family, giving or receiving support, connecting with your community, volunteering, All of these things are ways that you can naturally start to boost your oxytocin levels. And as you might remember from earlier on in this episode, we release a lot of oxytocin when we have orgasms. The great news is that you don't actually need another person to have an orgasm. You can start to give yourself more of them. And when you do, you'll start to disassociate your sexuality from the person that you were previously with. So it's kind of like a palate cleanser in that way. Another very controversial palate cleanser that the science is actually in full support of is getting a rebound. It can be really, really helpful to not just biologically palate cleanse, but mentally palate cleanse by diverting your attention to another person. I think the key here in getting a rebound is number one, that you don't just repeat the same cycles and patterns over again. And number two, that you're being really conscious and intentional about this. So as many of you know, I'm a huge advocate for integrity and an even bigger advocate for honesty. 
So if you're going to utilize a rebound as a way to heal your broken heart, I think it's really important that you're honest with that person about what your intentions are. In terms of regulating your dopamine levels again, it's really important that you are prioritizing your sleep here. If you're having a really hard time sleeping because your serotonin levels are off, you can go back to what we mentioned before, sunshine, laughter, a consistent exercise routine. All of those things will eventually help you get enough sleep so that your dopamine levels can start to regulate themselves a little more quickly. You can also help regulate your dopamine levels through spending time in nature, listening to music that you love, And I'm going to put a little asterisk here of no depression playlists, no Sarah McLachlan, no John Mayer slow dancing in a burning room. You are only allowed to listen to music that you love that makes you feel happy and makes you feel good when you're going through a breakup. And on theme with regulating your dopamine levels naturally I'm going to encourage you to spend a lot less time on your phone when you're going through this transition. Our phones tend to compel us to behave in very impulsive and addictive ways, very similarly to how love does. And so the dopamine rush that we get through being on our phones is a little more synthetic. It's not as authentic as when we get a dopamine hit from things in nature, for example. So spend more time in nature, less time on your phones. The fourth way you can begin to move on from your ex is by tackling your memory bias. So make a list of every single bad or negative aspect of the relationship, of all of the reasons why it did not work out and why that's a good thing, in either the notes app on your phone or in a notebook and look at it every single time you miss your ex. Every single time your brain goes down memory lane, reminiscing, thinking about all the good times you had together, wondering if maybe there's a potential for the two of you to get back together again. Look at this list. Remember, your brain wants you to get back together with your ex because it prioritizes making babies even if you're somebody who consciously does not want babies in this lifetime, your biology is still the same. The unconscious compulsion is still the same. So tackle your memory bias by intentionally reminding yourself of all the reasons why it did not work and that's a good thing. The fifth thing that you can do to start to heal your broken heart is just by giving yourself some time. Every single thing that you experience in this world including another person, is stored within the neural pathways of your brain. That means your brain has created a representation of the person that you've lost. They are literally a part of you, or at least your perceptual experience of them as a part of you. It's going to take some time for your brain to unlearn and weaken the neural pathways associated with representing who this person was to you and the attachment bond that you formed with them. And so as cliche as it sounds, this is where neuroscience really affirms that time does heal all wounds. If you have been working through every single one of these five items on the list, and 
you are still struggling to move on with your life, get over your ex and heal your broken heart, it might be a really good idea to get some support. If you know that you need some support in not just getting over a breakup, but also in rewiring your relationship patterns in general, this is one of my favorite things that I love to help my clients with. So if you've been thinking about one-on-one coaching, there's an application in the show notes for a complimentary 90-minute long coaching call with me to see if we're a good fit to work together. Just a quick note that completing the application does not guarantee a call. The more intentionally and honestly you can fill it out, the deeper we'll be able to dive when and if we do hop on a call together. Before we end today's episode, I want to remind you that your brain is so incredibly resilient. It was designed to rewire and rewire and rewire itself. Because of this, there is very little in terms of adversity, in terms of heartbreak, that your brain is incapable of bouncing back from. So be patient with yourself. Be kind to yourself. And know that no matter how devastating your heartbreak has been, your brain is going to heal. If you're interested in learning more about the neuroscience of love, attraction, heartbreak, and healing, there's a two-hour-long masterclass available for purchase on my website called Rewiring Relationships. This masterclass is only $27 and dives deeper into what we've talked about in today's episode. You can learn more about this masterclass and sign up at alexnashton.com slash rewiringrelationships or click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening all the way until the end today, for subscribing, and especially for those of you that have left a five-star review and a written review. Thank you so much again for all of you who have reached out to me over on Instagram. I love your messages. Keep them coming. I am so grateful to be able to talk nerdy with you. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.